Welcome to the Fader interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, editorial director of the Fader. Jenny Vol is one of the English language's greatest musical manipulators. Her power to express both abstract ideas and visceral impulses through song is even more impressive, considering English is her second language. Born in Norway's southern Bible Belt, an austere and stifling cultural landscape she describes in harsh detail in her latest novel, Girls Against God, she left as soon as she could. She moved to Australia for university, started a band there, and worked on her first book. At first, she tried to write it in English before switching to Norwegian, though it's now been retranslated as Paradise Rot. Physically, too, Vol returned to her home country, settling in Oslo. But musically, she stuck with her adopted tongue. She released her first album, Cigars, in 2006 as Rocket to the Sky, and has been mutating both her sound and her lyrical approach ever since. Under that moniker and then her given name, which she re-adopted starting with 2011's Viscera, she's released seven solo albums, four full-length collaborative projects, and three EPs, a body of work that spans heady experimentalism, poignant cultural criticism, and deceptively saccharine art pop. Tomorrow, she'll share Classic Object, designed as her most plain-spoken album to date, but containing multitudes nonetheless. Last month, she spoke to the faders Raphael Helfand about the separation of art and self, the paranoid style in postmodernist music, and her new puppy, Cleo. Welcome to the Fader Podcast, Yeni Val. Um, Thank you. Pronouncing that right, correct? You are. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> you have an unusual relationship with language. English is your second language, but you write music in it exclusively, and your lyrics often read like prose poems. Has English always unlocked a more musical mode of expression for you than your native Norwegian? I grew up with music being almost entirely in English, except for the music sung at school, and like a couple of like children's TV and a, like a few other things. They were in Norwegian, but everything that I got to know as music that I just heard was in English. So for me, music has always been English and Norwegian has been the language that tells you who you are by the authorities around you. And the, the you know, the language of the Bible and the language of school and and obviously also the language of literature, because I still prefer to read in Norwegian if I can, because I, I, I know that I, I understand English very well from a musical perspective. But I still, you know, there are a lot of words that I have read in my life, also when I was studying in English, when I was living in Australia. And I was just accepting that I, I don't understand what this word means, but I understand it musically. So I'll just keep reading. Um, so I have this weird relationship with English in that way. I think music kind of broke it. I'm still discovering all these words I don't understand. I want to talk about something you wrote in your album bio, which is attributed to you. The reason we have melodies is to step into the dark and jump off cliffs. Do songwriting and listening involve leaps of faith that prose writing and reading don't, you think? Yes. And I think that's why I wrote that in the press release, because I just think it's important. It's a very simple statement, but it is kind of a statement that I felt very strongly about during this kind of odd pandemic writing period that I had for this album. I, I really did feel like I was in a lockdown space and music would enable me to sort of go walk out the door and not into just the street, but anywhere. This is also like my idea of a good 
pop song, a good melody takes me places. And it doesn't always have to be like the most like type of melody that moves a lot. It could be only in the percussion that makes it really interesting. It could be the chord changes. But there is this incredible opportunity for change. You change a chord, you play different. Now I'm like tapping away with my hands. Like you, you just change something and it's just with your hands or with your voice, it's just a tiny bit. And then it becomes like, oh, different world. And I really love that. And I think that's a, a very important sort of spiritual part of writing and listening to music. For me, some of the best songs are the ones where I feel like I'm taken off a cliff with the artist or with the musicians. That was something I was thinking about a lot during the writing of this album. For me, your last uh, Lost Girls album, which I won't try to pronounce here, but it was one of my favorites of last year, flipped the traditional voice-language relationship on its head. Where lyrics are essential to most of your music, a song like Love Lovers, for me, shows that lyrics can exist in service to melody and the sound of your voice rather than vice versa. Um, does that impulse come from the devotional music that you've been listening to? I'm not sure. I think that I find it quite interesting that you bring in Lost Girls because that album, some of the songs, I wouldn't say all of them, were definitely sort of made simpler than I wanted to lyrically because I wanted to change words or like give give words le less value but more value as like a musical performance. And I'm not saying by singing them so beautifully, I'm thinking about something else, which is that opportunity to change a little bit what those words mean by singing them differently, repeating them, having several layers of them, working them, giving them some, like putting them in the washing machine <laughs> or the opposite of the washing machine, maybe. It's like what many people, I think, do with effects. So you put on a distortion, you know, returning to metal or, or lots and lots of other um, genres. You really want to have a sound and then you want to distort it. You want to change it. You want to see it go through a process. Yeah, that's why it's called processing. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that to me was really interesting to do on top of beats and without maybe having crazy vocal effects, but more about just choosing words and then just repeating them, stretching them and allowing them to exist without having lots and lots of like more finished thoughts. Um, there is a song on my new album that has is a very different thing, but has that effect somewhat, uh, which is the one called Freedom. I wanna live in a democracy. I wanna live in a democracy. That also existed for me to sort of move, almost move away from the idea of self that the rest of the album has by not making the words the most important part, even though you, you, you could think that they are, but they're not to me. <laughs> yeah. Year of Love, the album's opener, flashes forward from the story of your own marriage to a marriage proposal you witnessed at one of your shows. 
Um, you say, a year later, I'm on stage when a man proposes to a woman right in front of me in the middle of a song I thought I knew what was about. Was that a big death of the author moment for you? Like you, you wrote that it made you consider, I'm paraphrasing here, but your priv- if your private actions had betrayed your art. Oh, yeah, but it's not the first time I've thought about that, but I think it's the clearest experience I've had of that. When I was writing this song, which it took me 25,000 words to write because I wrote an entire manuscript in Norwegian thinking that I would sort of process this because this is a huge deal. Like I could write like a, I don't know what it's called in, in English, but we call it nøkkelroman. <laughs> it's like key novel, which is like a novel that has lots of references to reality. Uh, and I was thinking I should write like almost like a memoir or, or this key novel about this exact moment, like being on stage and, and being sort of hidden as an artist by someone proposing to another person. It was very interesting to experience. And I, I really did feel like I could write a book about it. But then I sort of maybe did that halfway and I thought, oh, I don't feel like this is working. I Maybe I was just writing that because it's, I was writing it at the beginning of the pandemic. I was trying to have find purpose in existence. And so I ended up just putting it all into this one song instead, pretty much. I mean, I wrote more than that, but that that's the essentials. At the time of writing, I was very much sort of interested in how the private life interfered with my message and how that is like a betrayal to my my audience, or you could see it that way. I mean, I also think that it, it's problematic that you have to think this, that you have to combine to the extent that we are doing and are capable of doing in every aspect now, because everyone's so available as so-called private people on social media and etc. So, I mean, after writing this, and now I'm thinking, well, being married, I'm not sure if I could have that define me that much. I'm, I don't feel like I'm a completely different person. I don't, it's not like I'm wearing a long skirt now and have become a Christian. So I think you can you can be married and still hate the system. <laughs> it's very stupid to say these things, like it's so banal. But I do think that the moment of being put in this position is extremely interesting because I think that it also is a good reminder that the artist is a very flawed character that you shouldn't trust an artist. I mean, you can really dig the music, but if we keep sort of fetishizing the artist as like a bodily existence and a private existence, that's very problematic. Also, like for the artist, because it, it sort of made me think that I should censor myself somehow, which isn't really helping anyone. It's it's problematic to feel like you, you're in this position and it's problematic for me many times as a spectator as well, that we're so obsessed with the person. But in the Yeah.
said that this album was your attempt at writing something very straightforward, perhaps to sort of counter that, uh, which, which you were just talking about. And uh, this sometimes comes in the form of you listing off the ordinary events of your day. You sort of literalize the artist diary concept as Agnes Varda does in Cleo from 9 to 5. Can you talk about the importance of that movie to this project? And I should add that um, I got that piece of trivia from the recent crack profile of you and that Sophie Kemp is a friend, so shout out to Sophie. Oh, nice. So I rewatched and watched for the first time many Varda films, I think in 2018. That was actually when I was writing The Practice of Love. And I really wanted to finish that my Jupiter song at that point and put it on the album. I didn't manage to, but I had the lyrics from referencing several of her films. I mean, she has been important for me always, or ever since I saw, I, I remember the first film I saw by Agnes Vardo, which was The Gleaners and I, in like the early 2000s. And I was like, amazed. But yeah, I think that there is there is more though, now that I think of it, I have been uh, watching her films, but also other films that have been like chronicling events from someone's day, like Chantal Ackerman after the practice of love, actually. So let's put in both those filmmakers as nice references. <laughs> but I failed though chronicling because I wanted to tell simple stories, but as soon as I was kind of getting into it, like in American coffee, I think the music makes me sort of remember that any story, doesn't matter how real it seems, is fictional. Like as soon as you're making choices and you're putting things into language, it might as well be science fiction. It's a different, like the world of language is not the same as the the world world of realism or whatever we're told that is, which is also problematic. So things kept coming in that didn't really happen. I have never lived with a group of nurses quoting the translator of a Deleuze and Guattari work. And that's like the extreme example, but I'm trying to tell simple stories, but something is resisting it and something wants to go elsewhere as well. And I do think that that is maybe sort of bringing like sewing together like earth and sky in a way like bringing together inside and outside interior exterior earthly heavenly but in the same path i do think that i very much failed my simple storytelling project but i started it just like i started that uh, novel that i never finished i wonder who Yeah, that, that song, American Coffee, I, it might be my favorite on the album. It's, I think it's like very stunningly pretty, but also hilarious. It starts with the series of really poignant images of your mother, and then all of a sudden there's the nurses quoting French philosophy, and then in the chorus, you're kind of like already making fun of yourself for that. Would it be fair to characterize that approach as like meta-postmodernism almost? Oh, well, that sounds good. I still have a sweet spot for postmodernism. I mean, I grew up at a time when it was the only f present slash future 
story to be told. That song could have gone further. It could have gone even more specifically into which science fiction movies that present themselves as sublime, but then actually maybe they're just another confused male character who's not given the opportunity to be more interesting. Talking about Interstellar. I think it it, it is like starting out as a simple story, becoming postmodern, or the character becomes infatuated with something postmodern, something inquisitive, and then gets a UTI from it and ends up in a hallucination type of universe that is both colorful and black and white. That's a strong pitch (laughs) from me. No, but I think that I, I really like trying out models that seem simple or cliched and then just saying what happens if we go a little bit further or step step a bit to the side of this and try to take a slightly different path i think many people work this way i'm certainly not unique i love traveling through the well-known and then jumping off that cliff like i was trying to explain with music and i do think for me music enables me and simple words or simple attempt of, uh, attempts of storytelling to just suddenly veer off and allow like a story to go from wannabe science fiction meeting myself in 30 years and end up on top of a vinyl record which is the universe one song that definitely seems to start off in sort of diary form then immediately diverges is year of sky it's 9 a.m but it doesn't matter place and time is only ever referenced to give you an entry point like ooh, 9am I had You're sort of preemptively undermining your liability as a diarist. It feels like a window into a very neurotic writing process, which is like compulsively backtracking before the plot begins in earnest. That's that's how I am. I'm always doing that. Yeah, so is, is that that's an accurate representation or is a line like that more like a more calculated later addition to a song? No, I think that's that's where it began. And it's playing on, I, I have a friend who's a, I haven't seen her for a very long time, but I really enjoy her writing. She's a writer and she used to have this Norwegian literary journal in which they explored journalistic cliches, which often is like starting an article or an interview with like, it's 9 a.m. and then describing certain things like time and place, placing and time, like timing. And then what does the person interviewed do with her cup of coffee? And what, like, you know, like these cliches of trying to set up a scene, they're not really needed. And that's like many times like what enables you to write in the first place. Like, how does it begin? Well, I'm in a place and there is a time and and then the brain comes in and that's just a cliche. Nobody needs that. So I many times start writing and then I realize I'm only writing to, to make myself begin to write now. And then I often remove that beginning. But for this song, I think that it worked nicely and it worked nicely with the melody. So I think that it. I felt that it was appropriate in the pandemic type of brain existence as well because it certainly it felt like well nothing matters and music doesn't matter not that it really did before either but 
um, it was a manifestation of how little music matters to the structures. So yeah, I could have said there's music on, but it doesn't matter. Uh, before we get too far away from Cleo, tell me a little about your puppy and the free associative poem at the end of Cemetery of Splendor, which appears to be written from her point of view. year and a half I got her as a true like pandemic dog because I've never been able to have time to get a dog through puppyhood but I just decided that well I've always wanted a dog I've grown up with dogs I need a dog's love in my life yeah I felt that it was necessary unfortunately I can't tell you a, a nice shelter dog story because we don't really have a lot of shelters here in Norway so I got her as a puppy I should say we because me and my partner certainly both do the work and so we got her as a puppy and it was just such a change for me in terms of how I exist in nature and in outside I think I got to experience the ground in a way that I never have before which I think is what I'm trying to describe. So I, the Cemetery of Splendor track, I've kind of wanted it to end with like nature taking over as if the pandemic really wiped us all out. And what was in the beginning, just empty music venues um, and public space being emptied in the end just was like the returning to nature taking over cities and the dog's perspective being the main perspective that exists. So that's why there are lots of nature sounds, exterior sounds, field recordings at the end, and then also the clear monologue, which is just like stuff she would find on the ground as a puppy. She was very excited about gum. Also banana peels. I felt like I couldn't put in banana peels because I have had this, there were, there had just been too much bananas in my work already. I've had bananas on stage and in songs and but she was also obsessed with banana peels. She's Now she doesn't care so much. She's older and she knows what they taste like. But yeah, I mean, I got a whole new perspective on being outside, having to go out all the time with her to do the potty training and just spend a long winter that was very cold outdoors, kind of just standing still while, while she was doing all her, you know, doing her thing, like sniffing at all sorts of garbage. <laughs> it was interesting and it, it made me very interested in becoming very small and really reevaluating grass and rocks and trees. I wrote one song that's not on the album that explained this whole thing where I sort of realized that my backyard is pretty much the same dimensions as a stage I should have been on when my tour was cancelled and I was spending all my time in the backyard with the dog instead. But yeah, that's not on the album, so that that will come later. You seem to have 
remarkable self-awareness, not only regarding your choice of words, but the way they're delivered. Did learning to change languages and accents within English, what the kids might call code switching, did that help you uh, explore different timbres and registers in your singing voice? Yeah, I think so. I was very aware of accents very early on, maybe because when I became a music nerd, it was um, mid-90s. So on the one hand, I found American music. On the other, I found like shoegaze, Britpop when I was a little younger. And I was very fascinated with various accents. I remember also being like listening to a lot to Stereolab and learning French pronunciation from Stereolab. So like I was pretty obsessed with pronunciation and also by how different accents could make language sound so different. Like when someone does a cover version of a song, but they have switched accents or they changed their own, like Kate Bush changes into this weird Australian accent in one of her songs on The Dreaming. That's very weird. There's something very strange happening at that point when she does that, because you always expect the body to express, like the voice to be expressing the authentic body, like your own accent or I guess not I mean in pop maybe it's been like some kind of weird Americanized standard pop accent but accents are really interesting and and they change language a lot and I've also changed my English accent according to who I'm with so when I moved to Australia I I didn't even understand that I did this but I started my Australian experience with living with a bunch of Brits And so my accent changed from, I don't know who I am, like school, whatever, or like I listen to Lush, so I'll be kind of British, (laughs) but only the words that they sing. (laughs) So I was confused and then I almost sounded like I was, at some point someone asked if I was from Bristol or from Brighton, no, from Brighton, that's right, because I was living with people from Brighton. And then I lived with Australians and I changed into more of an Australian accent. And now I'm confused again how many years later because I've been traveling too much, I've been traveling to America, and people laugh at you when you have a weird Australian accent in America. So I'm, I guess I'm inauthentic and I'm kind of loving it. I mean, I don't come from any English speaking country, so I guess I can, I have to adapt. Also because I, I don't trust myself, like I, I get infatuated with people's words and I copy them. I've always been a bit like that. I mean, I don't try very hard to sound like this or that. I naturally just change. I think that's some kind of, I guess, musical empathy to want to sound a little bit like the people you speak with. Like if I speak with people who have like a thicker other country accent, I think that I'll change a little bit as well. Like if I speak with my French friend, I'll sound a tiny bit more French after an hour. Not that I would be able to speak French because I don't really speak French, but there is something really lovely about adapting to the people you are with. Like it's like reaching out. All, I think people do that. this also with the sound of their voices. One example I thought I heard in the album um, of this type of shifting was between the final two tracks, Freedom and The Revolution Will Not Be Owned. On Freedom, you use this sing-songy, like almost mockingly poppy register. And on the revolution will not be owned, you're back in this sort of steadier, almost academic tone. You even say, like, this way of speaking belongs to us. 
are you getting it like two different types of revolution here, like a populist resolution versus a revolution of ideas? Well, you could say that. I'm definitely doing something in freedom. I think I already sort of touched upon it. Those words, the lyrics to freedom, sort of wrote themselves. It was as if I was really saying, I want to live in a democracy, but then add a bunch of stuff because I don't know what a true democracy is. I don't know what freedom is. These topics are so manipulative. They're these huge words that are used by all sorts of political ideologies to express wide variety of things. And so I felt like I have more to say, but I will stop because the melody of this song is what this is about. And so it became for me, like I imagined this song to be like something you sing when there's a break in court or when people have been arguing in parliament or in the Congress. And like, let's have a break, everyone. We'll sing. We'll sing a song. <laughs> and it could be this one. That'd be nice. That'd be nice. <laughs> Maybe that's why people sing in church, to sort of feel like, okay, this sermon is crazy. <laughs> let's sing. And we all agree because we sing the same melody. And who cares about the words? Now I went off on a tangent. But I think that that simplicity which is also quite deceptive, but there's something hopeful about it as well. I wanted that on the album, so I included Freedom, although I'm a little embarrassed. I mean, I have lots of mixed emotions about lots of songs, but I made them and I, I don't release an album for it to be my own favorite album. And I also don't, I, I try not to release albums just based on what I think will make me the most likable. <laughs> I don't think that I would be able to anyway. But... So Revolution, the final track, is kind of a joke, that title, obviously a reference, but uh, The Revolution Will Not Be Owned sort of deals with, it's. I, I mean, in a way it's going full circle back to the year of love, which is the beginning of the album, in which the artist is in a very compromised position or realizing that she is in a compromised position. And I think the Revolution track just wants to sort of compare released industrialized music with actual free dreaming or free expression or expressing yourself in a way that's kind of beyond control. So dreaming obviously is a word that is also can mean whatever. It can legitimize so many horrible things. But I guess I'm talking about my own inability to actually be subcultural, be truly different, take music back to its original ritualistic purpose, create the revolution, create change in society, and all these like big words. Maybe that's not possible as long as you are participating in an industry and in a press release and in a physical and digital platform release and agreeing that, yes, my music will be on Spotify. Great sign here you know like back to this is contract but i do still think that there is like there is a place that where you can be really free and i'm trying to sort of look at where could that be and can it sort of cross over in tiny increments into this record even if it is such a compromised position and i don't have an answer for that but i did think it was nice to end in a sort of dreamscape with two songs in which the lyrics sort of wrote themselves, I was just 
typing away and I never really edited much. So I'm very happy with the recording of Revolution. I'll just call it Revolution now because originally it sounded a lot more poppy, but then Johan Linval, who plays the piano on this track, made it very different by playing this almost like completely improvised flow of notes that slowly became structured to 9 a.m., but it doesn't matter <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, I feel like it's it's an interesting track because the lyrics kind of go from awake state into dream. And then the music side of things, which we haven't discussed very much, and I, I'm never very good at bringing the conversation there, but I obviously work maybe 70% with, you know, the music production, but I just never talk about it. So the music goes the other way. So it goes from very free-flowing into a structured BPM and 4x4 and a much more structured chord change interval. So that's like a little mystery, that track. Very flawed and strange compared to how we recorded most of the other tracks. But I, I felt like it was a good ending, falling asleep. Yeah, so I know I know you've got to go pretty much, but I have I wanted to end on on the title track, which to me, classic objects feels the closest to to the old Yenival, because uh, there's death masks, bodies, and bodily waste fusing with visual art. You said you were trying to strip yourself naked on this album to see, like, without all the art and artifice, whether you were just an empty canvas. You think in the end that you or any artist can achieve a full separation from their art and know what they are without it. I can't speak for others. I know that I can't. I'm just me, I think. And that is both the body and the body, like the bodiless but embodied artist that is the voice on an album. It is the body in space. It is the married woman who sings about other types of love. It is complicated. I feel like it can be complicated and joyful at the same time. And I think that on this album, maybe on like the, the title track and on Year of Love on Jupiter, I mean, I'm trying to sort of also describe this by layering percussion, by layering something very groovy, but quite complicated on top of each other, almost to create like a something very contradictory, but with contradictions comes groove. <laughs> That's a, with contradiction comes Groovy. A dream is a remix of That was Yeni Val talking to The Fader's Raphael Helfand. Yeni Val's new album, Classic Objects, is out tomorrow, March 11, via 4AD. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Salvatore Mackey. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you've enjoyed today's episode, 
we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, good news. We're now on the live radio app, AMP. You can download it from the App Store and check out our shows with the access code FADERONAMP. That's F-A-D-E-R-O-N-A-M-P, all caps. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.